point, what we believe as Christians. Last week we led off with this whole idea of why doctrine is important. And today we're going to go to our first line on our statement of faith. You just heard about that, the idea of the Bible, the starting point, and what's so special about that book. So we're going to dive in in just a second here. Would you bow with me right now and let's pray. God, thank you for the book you've given us, the Bible, as we're going to see today. It certainly stands apart than any other thing we could read or rally around or teach uh, that exists today. It's your word. And God, we want to cement that today. God, uh, help us to be men and women who walk out of here in about 40 minutes or so uh, with an, an inspired, passionate, convicted heart to not only read your word, but to live it. And we'll just give you great thanks and praise for that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So about a, a decade ago, a game show came out that many of you are probably familiar with. It's called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that game show. About every one of you at first service, a little bit less. But every one of you in this service <laughs> understands who wants to be a millionaire. And I can remember when it came out about a decade ago, and Regis Philbin was the uh, host, and it was just running like crazy, and everybody's watching it. That um, I, you know, the, you might, might know the game is, shows about a certain amount of money, and you have to answer a question. And it starts off real easy for a hundred bucks, but then when you go to two hundred, five hundred, a thousand, it's fourteen questions. By the time you get up to a million, it's a really hard question. So it's a trivia game. And I can remember watching it years ago, and one of my first thoughts was, is I thought, you know, if, if this was a Christian game show, and all the questions had to do with the Bible, I wonder how well people would do. I remember thinking, I wonder how well Christians would do. I wonder how well my church would do if they were on national television having to answer 14 questions in kind of ascending order from easy to really hard for money. I wonder how the average Christian would do. How much do they really understand about the Bible? So I had a lot of time on my hands back then, and I made up my own version of this show. And I want to run it by you right now. So we're going to call this Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, hosted by Jamie Rasmussen. And I am going to ask you, we're not going to do 14, we don't have time, I'm going to ask you 10 questions. And just where you sit, just between you and God and probably your spouse, because they'll know, uh, do, you know, how well can you do with certain Bible trivia? How well do you know the Bible? How well can you do at this game? Okay, you ready for it? Let's start off really easy for 100 bucks. Here's the question. And that is, who wrote the four Gospels? Is it A... Is it A, Lonnie, Donnie, Monty, and Ronnie? Is it B, Larry, Curly, Moe, and Shemp? Is it C, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is it D, Jamie, Daryl, Pat, and Troy? If you answered C, then you just won 100 bucks. Not too bad. All right. You ought to feel good about yourself. There you go. All right. Let's start this one. Who, how many, how many books in the Bible are there? A, 2, Old New Testament. B, 66. C, 666, don't answer that one. <laughs> or D, 6,666. And it is? It's, it's B, 66 books in the Bible. Good. See, you guys are doing really well. All right, let's try 500 or, or for 1,000 bucks. Who was it that first discovered Paul the Apostle and encouraged him in ministry? Is it A, John, B, Peter, C, Barnabas, or D, Silas? Anybody know? It's C, Barnabas. Barnabas, the one who discovered Paul the Apostle and encouraged him to go into ministry. He's called the son of encouragement. 
All right, see, it's getting a little bit harder. All right, let's go for 4,000 bucks. The book of Romans is primarily about what? A, the life of Jesus. B, salvation by faith alone. C, Christian unity. Or D, financial freedom. Which one is it? It's, it's B, salvation by faith alone. It's an awesome, awesome book. In my last church, I spent a year and a half just teaching out of the book of Romans. Maybe we'll do that here. All right, now for 8,000 bucks, uh, what was the name of Bathsheba's husband, the one that David had killed because he wanted Bathsheba? Is it A, Josiah the Canaanite, B, Abijah the Jebusite, C, Uriah the Hittite, or D, Daryl the Uptite? It is? It's C, Uriah the Hittite. Good. You guys know your Bible. And don't tell Daryl that I did that. You guys know your Bible really, really well. All right, starting to go harder. What are the three different names for the Apostle Peter in the New Testament? Is it A, Simon, Andrew, and Peter? B, Cephas, Peter, and Judah? Or B, C, Peter, Andrew, and Cephas? Or D, Simon, Peter, and Cephas? It's D. Good. Hey, you guys are doing really well. Uh, it's D, Simon, Peter, and then Cephas. All right, starts to get a bit harder. The book of James is specifically written to who or whom? The 12 tribes, or the chosen lady and her children, or Gaius, or the saints in Laodicea? Anybody know? It's A. It's written to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the whole area. You can look it up later if you don't believe me, but trust me, I wouldn't be that dumb. So that's the book of James. How many of you got that? Raise your hand if you, you got that. Okay, good. Uh, how many of you did it? All right, it really gets hard now. How old was Methuselah? He's the oldest guy in the Old Testament when he died. Was he 968, 969, 967, or 976? Oh, you got it. Good for you. Good. Hey, very good. B, he was 969 years old. You could only wish, right? All right, gets really hard now. For half a million bucks, who was the second king of Judah described as doing right in God's sight in the book of First Kings? Was it A, Asa, B, Joshua, C, Josiah, or D, Jehoshaphat? Some of you say C. Some of you, a lot of people in the first service thought it was A, it's D, Jehoshaphat. Again, you can look it up. A lot of people think Asa because he was one of the first good kings. I think he might have been the third, but we can look it up later. I had to look that one up, by the way. So for a million bucks, this is really hard. What minor prophet book begins by calling itself the Oracle of Nineveh? Everybody thinks C because they associate Nineveh with Jonah, but it's a trick question. It's actually the book of Nahum is the one book that in the Minor Prophet. You got that? Good. She's, she's giving herself a round of applause here. Good. All right. She got that Nahum. So here's the question. How many of you got 10 out of 10? How many of you got all of these right? Let's see a hand raise. Very, very few of you. What a bummer. We ought to pack it up and go home. No. I have done this game at elder retreats, staff retreats. I got different versions of it. And I got to tell you, those last two questions, I mean, I had to look them up myself. If you had asked me those without me looking them up, probably wouldn't have gotten those, and I've been to seminary. But, you know, one of the things that this, this little exercise does do, and I think this is the point of it, is it helps us all realize that there are plenty of things in the Bible that we might just might not know. 
that what culture watchers have noted throughout all the last 100 years in America is that we've been going downhill in our understanding of the Bible, not uphill. And not just in culture, it's not just when Jay Leno goes out and embarrasses everybody by very simple Bible questions that they can't understand, but it's actually within the church that we've done studies of graduates from Wheaton College, the creme de la creme of Christian families. Their Bible knowledge is not as strong as their parents or grandparents was at their same age. George Barna, George Gallup, all the great pollsters have noticed that we've gone downhill in our understanding of the Bible, not uphill. And that should concern us. Because you see, folks, if the Bible was just another self-help book, this wouldn't be the problem. Even if the Bible was just another holy book, this wouldn't be a problem. But the problem is, is that within the Christian worldview, when it comes to our walk with Almighty God, the Bible itself claims to be much more than a self-help book and even much more than a holy book. Now, to show you this today, I want to do two very simple things in our time remaining. I want to share with you a main point that is absolutely key to our understanding of why the Bible is so important for us as Christians, as well as to anybody that wants to know God and follow Him. And then I want to share with you a take-home point that's going to more than challenge you on what to do with our main point. So, here's our main point. Look up here on the screen. And that is that God speaks to us through his word. And that's why the Bible is so important. God declares that he speaks to us in and through his word. And I would add, so if you aren't diligently, personally, and regularly in his word, then here's the fact, God is not speaking to you as he wants to. That's how important the Bible is. Kind of like a teenager who might live under the roof of his or her parents' house, but is in rebellion against him or her, doesn't really want to have a conversation, doesn't really listen to their parents, but still lives under the same roof and has meals every once in a while and drives a family car, but there's a huge distance between mom and dad because there's no communication. That's the Christian who wants to be under the umbrella of God's salvation, but doesn't study his word, doesn't know his word, doesn't hear him regularly in his word. God says, by default then, there's very little communication between me and you. I like how Calvin Miller in his book, The Table of Inwardness, says it. He says, Christians who do not read nor study the Bible are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without effort. And he's right. We have a bunch of spiritual romantics walking around today that want relationship with God without the effort of having to hear him and understand him as he has revealed himself in his word. This is such an important point for us to understand today, folks. So many well-meaning and good-hearted followers of God simply miss the fact that his word is so important for you and I to digest because it's the primary way he communicates with us. Schrader and I were texting last night, Tom Schrader's pastor at Redemption Church and just funny guy and we've become close friends and he asked me, you know, what are you speaking on tomorrow? And I texted him back and I said, I'm speaking on inspiration, illumination, inerrancy, revelation and the word. What are you speaking on? <laughs> and he had nothing on what we're talking about here today. So why did I text him that? I look up here on the screen. I put a rather complicated flowchart in your outline and up here on the screen that looks daunting at first, but when you add up what I'm about to explain to you, helps you and I to understand how and why God has chosen to speak to us through his word and why it is so 
important. So, so, so let me walk you through this thing, helping you understand some key Christian doctrine and how it all fits together. Notice that it all begins with revelation. Revelation, not the book, but the concept or the idea. The idea of revelation is simply the fact that God has self-disclosed himself. He has revealed himself to us in particular ways. I shared this with you last week when we were talking about who God is, and I said that, that one theologian puts it this way, that God is a God who stands, and then he stoops, and then he speaks. That's God. God has revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us. Another conception of God, the deist view of God, is the opposite. It's a view of God that stands, steps back, crosses his arms, and says, good luck, and is very distant from his creation. That's not the Christian concept of God, not at all. God is a God who has revealed himself to us in particular ways, in particular times, and he asks us to align ourselves with his revelation and how he has revealed himself. And once you understand that, the question becomes, then how does God do this? How has he revealed himself? And what you simply need to know, now don't miss this, is, give me two clicks here, guys, is that the primary way that God has revealed himself is in his word. It's in his word. 3,000 times the Hebrew or Greek word for word appears in the Bible. 3,000 times the Bible uses the Hebrew word dabar or the Greek word rhema or logos to refer to God's divine utterance or expression. Don't miss this. The fact that when God chose to reveal himself, he chose to do so through this thing called the word. And you all know the, 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 the phrases, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, thus saith the Lord, Isaiah would say. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you. And so it's kind of best summed up in Matthew 4, verse 4, when it says, but he, Jesus, answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And so simply notice here that it all begins with the fact that God wants to reveal himself to you and me, and he does so through this thing called the Word. Now, listen very closely to the, this next part, because this is where many Christians get confused. The vehicles of God's Word, the manifestations or methods of communication, if you will, are primarily twofold, and this is what the Scriptures teach us. And that is that God reveals himself through the living word, Jesus Christ, represented by his incarnation into humanity, but then also by the scriptures, the Bible, inspired by God, literally authored by him, that are likewise his word to humanity. In other words, the Bible calls Jesus the living word, and then he also gives us the written word, and these both are the mediums of how God has primarily communicated his salvation and his truth to us. They are both God's words, both his utterances to us. And so dial into this. First, notice how Christ is described as the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Here it is. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So don't miss this. God has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. And you're saying, yeah, but where does it say he's the word? I'm glad you asked. John chapter 1, verse 1 and then verse 14. Look up here on the screen. In the beginning was the 
Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then skip down to verse 14, and the world became, Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus, don't miss, is the Word of God, God's personal communication to you and me. And this is why, by the way, Jesus is so important. Because when God chose to speak to you and me, to reveal himself through his word, he chose Jesus. As we're going to see in two weeks from now, the second person of the Trinity, God come in the flesh, the incarnation, God becoming a human being. That's how God has chosen to speak to us. And when God chose to deal with our sin problem that separates us from himself, he chose Jesus to be the final sacrifice for our sin. When God wanted to teach us about who he is, he chose Jesus. When God wanted to show us what a holy life is about, he chose Jesus. When God wanted to show us what grace and compassion are like, he chose Jesus. And so why is Jesus important? Why is he the only way? Because he is how God speaks, and without hearing God speak, you cannot know him. And so with this understanding, however, notice that there's a second way and an equal way that God communicates to us, and that is through a second usage of this idea of the Word, and that is the Scriptures or the Bible. So check out 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. The Old Testament that Jesus himself affirmed and the New Testament that Jesus told us the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into, all Scripture is God-breathed. I hope this isn't boring to you, but that phrase God-breathed is a fascinating phrase in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. It's actually a made-up word. It's a combination of two different Greek words that Paul the Apostle, only here in the New Testament, strung together in one word to try to communicate this concept to us. It's a combination of the Greek word theos, which means God, and then the Greek word noustos, which means breath or wind or air. Just the idea of blowing. And what Paul did is he combined these two words to say this, God breathed, God blew, God spoke. Through the Old and New Testament writers, his will, his words, his truth to you and I so that we would have something for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in our righteousness. The scriptures then, folks, literally become God's will, his words, his plans, his thoughts, his mind to you and me. Remember that old saying that you used to use when you are growing up, penny for your thoughts? God has basically said, I'm going to give you my thoughts, and I'm not even going to charge you a dime. I'm not going to even charge you a penny. I'm going to give them to you freely, but they're going to be contained and found in my word, the Bible. And so don't miss where we've come from. We have the revelation, which leads then to this idea of the word, the word that comes to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and then also in the written word, the Bible. And before we put all of this together with one more theological concept that's very important, it's also very important that you understand one other thing about this idea of God's Word, and that is that it's inerrant. It's inerrant. 
It's that word that our statement of faith uses. And simply put, what we're saying is that because God has breathed out his truth to us in his written word, then by its very nature, it has to be true. It has to be right. It has to be pure because it comes from God. Give me all a head nod that we understand this. The word inerrant simply means without error. And it's a theological term that evangelicals throw around that's a very important term that's simply telling us that the Bible is true. It's infallible on all that it says on faith and all of life. I I want you to to listen to how Wayne Grudem helps us understand this. As many of you know, we're using Wayne's resources in this series of our. Wayne is a research professor of of systematic theology at Phoenix Seminary. He's known all over the world. He's written a very thick systematic theology that we're asking you, if you want to, to read throughout this series with us. And you can get it at our bookstore. I also interviewed him a while back, a few weeks ago, on all of our statement of faith. And at one point, I asked him about this idea of inerrancy and to help us understand what it is and why it is so important. And with his usual conviction and clarity, he had a great answer. So look up here on the screen. Well, let's start walking through a little bit of our statement of faith. As as you know, because you've been involved with our church for years, our statement of faith kind of goes in order of how we think theology and doctrine should flow. And so it begins with a statement on how we would know what is truth. It begins with a statement on the Bible. And we say in our statement of faith, we believe the Bible is inerrant, and we believe that it is the final authority in faith and life. Could you please define for us what does the Bible? What do we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant? In short, it means that the Bible always tells the truth. Hmm. It doesn't lie to us about anything. Uh, more precisely, it says that uh, the doctrine of inerrancy uh, affirms that the Bible does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Hmm. Now it reports some false statements of unbelievers, like the fool says in his heart, "There is no God." But it, the Bible isn't saying there is no God. It's saying that the fool says that. Yeah. And so uh, what we say in the doctrine of inerrancy is that everything that the Bible teaches is true. Everything that it affirms is true. And the reason is that it comes from God who cannot lie. Um, Titus 1-2 says uh, he's the unlying God. It's his nature not to lie. And these are his words. Yeah. So the doctrine of inerrancy is really rooted in the person of God. It is. It's not just some blind faith in a book that was handed down from history. It's its own self-attestation that it comes from God who cannot lie. Right. And so we as evangelical Christians, as Protestant Christians, uh, we affirm that the Bible is not only the words of man, who the human authors who wrote it, but it's also the words of God. Hmm. And by saying that, we are saying that the Bible is different from every other book in the entire history of the world. Everything else that's ever been written in all the libraries of the world is human writing. And it can have a lot of truth in it, but can also have mistakes. But this is the only place we can go in the entire world to find the words that God has spoken to the human race about himself Hmm. for all people, for all time. And so it's, uh, I think it's right that the preface here in this ESV Bible says the, the Bible is the greatest treasure that the world affords. Mm. 
It, uh, yeah. Without it, we wouldn't know God. If, if we lost the other books in the world, we would eventually be able to discover the things that had been discovered and, and rewrite many of those things. But if we lost the Bible and didn't have the Bible in the world, the human race would wander in darkness forever. Oh, wow. That is a strong statement <laughs> that we could lose every other book in all of humanity and eventually maybe find our way back to the knowledge. Could not do that without the Bible. Right. Wow. The Bible is the only book, and it's the only book in the world that contains the very words of God that he speaks to us. And uh, that belief that, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, the belief that all scripture is breathed out by God, that is spoken by God, mm. um, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in yes. righteousness. That belief is what sets us as evangelical believers apart from all other religious studies mm. and uh, theologies uh, in, the, in the whole world. Kind of makes you want to read the book, doesn't it? I like how the Bible itself talks about itself when it talks on the subject of inerrancy. In Psalm 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. And so from Augustine to Aquinas to the Reformers, down to modern day, for 2,000 years, Every great theologian has affirmed what the Bible itself affirms, and that is that what it says is true. It can't be without error, for it comes from God. And so we can have confidence, you and I can, that when we read it and understand it rightly, within the context of a historical grammatical approach, reading it within the genre that it was written in, interpretation is important, that we can have confidence that it says what it says. And yet it doesn't stop here. Once you get all of this, the fact that God has revealed himself in the word through scripture that is inerrant, there is one more part to God's communication plan that kind of pulls it all together that you're very much going to like. It's what we call the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination, simply put, it's what the Holy Spirit does when you and I read this book with an open mind and a humble heart. It's what God does in you to, again, go back to the beginning, to reveal himself to you in and through the word. So look at how Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this to us. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you should be saying, whoa. And the fact that God has revealed himself in the Word. And I think the Word here actually has a double meaning. I think it refers to Jesus in the context of Hebrews as well as the written Word. But focusing on the written Word here, it's saying that the written Word is living and active. That word active is the Greek word energis, where we get our English word energy from. It's got power to it. It's doing something in us. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. What does that mean? Discerning the intentions of your thoughts in your hearts. And so simply put, when you read the Bible and the Holy Spirit works in your heart, he does so in such a way that reveals God to you as you humbly submit to him, and it helps you to understand him in a convicting, encouraging, uh, revealing kind of way. And so maybe look at it this way. You might say to a friend of yours in a very simple moment, hey, I want to spend some time with you. I'll meet you at Starbucks. That would be a common thing to say today. God, when he wants to spend time with you, and he does, says, I'll meet you in my word. 
Forget about Starbucks. You can go there if you want to. But I'm going to meet you in this book. I'm going to meet you in my already given revelation that you're going to read, that you're not going to understand. And I'm going to illumine your mind so that you can understand it rightly. And in so doing, you're going to commune with me in personal relationship. And so maybe now, folks, give me another click here. You can see what we're trying to say here. Through these wonderful doctrines contained in our statement of faith, these are not just kind of conceptual things that you and I give lip service to. These are life-giving things that help you and me know God. He reveals himself. He's done so in the Word. That Word is in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. That Word is also in his scriptures that he's inspired to us that are inerrant. And that as we meet him in his word, reading and studying and knowing and talking with other people about, he says he'll illumine our minds and our hearts. And the reason that this is so important is because there are many, many people today, believers and non-believers alike, who try to convince themselves that God primarily speaks to us in other ways. Now listen very close. I'm not going to say that God does not speak to our spirits in other ways. He does so. But what I've been submitting to you up to this point in our talk, and I'm going to stand by this, is that it is through God's Word, His Word in Jesus and His Word in the written Word, that are God's primary mode of communication to you and I. Primary. And though there are other ways that he speaks, he speaks to us in creation, he speaks to us in our own rational thinking, he speaks to us in our feelings and impulses through circumstances, through coincidences, he does speak those ways to our spirits. If we base our most critical and life decisions only on those things, and so many Christians I know do, and not primarily upon his word, then you're in trouble. And you're in big trouble when it comes to your Christian faith. What am I talking about? I know I'm going to step on some toes with the examples, but let's just be honest. We're in the house of God, okay? Let's be honest. 80% of Christians today, before they get married, both sleep together and also live together. 80%. We're just like the world. And as a pastor now, obviously I've been attuned to this for years because I know the Bible, and the Bible clearly says that you should keep the marriage bed pure, meaning you should not sleep together with somebody before you get married. And it says that you should not act in an untoward manner toward the person that you're going to get married to, which implies you should not sleep or live with him or her in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so the reality is Paul says, if you can't do that, then get married right away. It's better to burn with passion. Don't burn with passion. It's better that you just get married right away. And so I hear Christians all the time that come to me and they want to get married. And I say, well, that's great. I'm happy to marry you. Yeah, we're planning a big wedding. We're having about a year from now. We're booking the hall and booking the church. And you're a big part of that. And then I'll sort of, you know, subtly ask. And by the way, whenever I get this illustration, nobody ever asks me to marry him anymore. But I subtly ask, <laughs> you know, in my usual, you know, non-candid way, are you living together and sleeping together? And usually the answer is, again, four to five times, yes. And when I ask why, I always get one of two answers. They say either one, because of economic convenience, times are tough and, you know, two rents and better than one and all that economic convenience. And then the second thing I hear is because it feels so good. And I love that second one because I go, well, I've been married 20 years. I know it feels good. I mean, I get that. I get it. And then I think to myself, since when has economic convenience and since when has our feelings become more important than what this book says. I and mean, what does that say about our lives? And I could give you a lot of other examples. When I ask Christians why they're divorcing, no, it just didn't work out. Really, was there an affair? No. 
Was there any abuse? No. So it just didn't work out. We tried. Went to counseling. Went to our pastor. We just fell out of love. Well, since when does that become an excuse for divorce? God says in Malachi, hate divorce. Jesus says, I do not permit a divorce except for marital infidelity. That's the only reason. And even that's debatable on how people interpret that. And so, so many examples I could give you of times where we know what God's Word says, but I don't think we've ingested it, at least into our life, into our living, as much as we think. We allow other ways to determine what we think is right. Our feelings, our circumstances, as difficult as they might be, our thoughts, what other people might say. I've heard all the excuses. And again, folks, don't hear me wrong. I think God does speak to us. I had a guy come up to me after last service and say, you really think God speaks to us in our spirits, you know, through circumstances and through a still small voice? Yeah, I do. I mean, and the Word affirms that. But, But listen, all the areas that I mentioned earlier, nature, rational thinking, your conscience, through other people, and even through circumstances, every one of those areas are fallen, sin-infected, and very flawed aspects of our lives. The Bible says consciences can be hard and or weak. Thoughts can be deceptive. Other people, even ones who love us, can be wrong. And circumstances on your best day, and all of you admit this, are very difficult to discern. And hence, they are always secondary and always under the authority of God's Word as the way that He speaks to us. For 2,000 years now, good Christian theology has affirmed that the primary way that God speaks to us is through His Word, in Jesus and the written Word. Everything else is the cherry on top of the cake of His Word. It shows that we got a bunch of Christians right around who've only tasted the cherry. They really don't know God's Word. They couldn't get to to 500 to 1,000 bucks on who wants to be a millionaire. So why is the Bible so important? Why is it the starting point of our entire statement of faith? Don't ever forget this. So we can hear and know God. It's the main thing that you and I need to rally around here this morning. Now, we have just a few minutes left. So once we've established this, we're ready for our take-home point. We don't need to belabor this. And it's a very simple take-home point, but it's at least what I'm inspired to do when I focus on this. And it's this. I want to pick up the book and read it. How about you? I want to pick it up. In fact, whenever I hear a message on the Bible, when I even hear like what Troy did earlier with people quoting, you know, certain aspects of the Bible, how many have been sold and how many languages have been translated into and what the Bible says about itself, I go, oh my gosh, i got to read the book more. I mean, even as a theologian, even as a pastor, I get so bogged down with somebody, i I got to read the book more. We should all have that response when we fully understand how God speaks to us in this world, and that this book is the primary way. We want to read it more. And I hear it all the time. You know the number one thing that keeps people from reading this book? They go, well, it's just kind of hard to understand. And it's kind of boring. Nobody ever says that, but that's what they mean. It's kind of boring. You know, it's not kind of as fun as a sitcom, and, you know, it's really not as easy to understand as a Daniel Steele novel and stuff like that. And so, you know, not that I've ever read Daniel Steele, mind you, but, you know, they go, I just, so a John Grisham novel, they go, it's just, you know, it's not quite as scintillating and engaging. It's just harder to understand, and I just don't get it. You know, people say that. I think to myself, what do you, what do you, do you usually like stop at third grade or something? I mean, the Bible is not that hard to understand. I mean, honestly, folks, I'm going to show you this in a second. It's not that hard. I would contend you don't even need a study Bible to understand the Bible. Do you understand they didn't have study Bibles before 100 years ago? Before Schofield, nobody had a study Bible. Before Gutenberg, nobody had their own Bible. 
I mean, the reality is people have been understanding the Bible and what it says about how to know God and find salvation in Him and live life to the fullest way before we had all the resources we have today. You know what they would do? They would read the doggone thing and say, I get it. It's not that hard. In fact, when you read it, just do three things. And I promise you, in the vast majority of context, you'll understand it. Uh, uh, read it by saying, what is it saying? Read it by saying, what does it mean? And then read it by saying, asking, what does it mean to me? You ask those three questions. In any particular passage in Scripture, I promise you, you'll get it by and large. You might, you might have to ask a few questions of people, but by and large, you'll get it. Now, let me give you an example. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say this. Give me a click here, guys, up on the screen. 2 Timothy 3, uh, or no, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. I need a click here. There you go. Good. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So you're reading that in your quiet time. You're reading that because you want to know what God says in the Bible. Apply those three questions. What is it saying? It's saying you should pray. That you should have prayers and supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people, and especially for governmental leaders, because you would know a king was a governmental leader, and that when you do that, there's going to actually be some kind of blessing there, peace and quiet life, godly and dignified. And though you might not know what all those words mean, the original Greek, you get the point in the English translation here that there's some sort of blessing that comes when we pray for governmental leaders. So all of a sudden you've answered the first questions, first two questions. What is it saying? What does it mean? It's saying that we should pray. It means what it says, that we need to pray for all people, especially for governmental leaders. Then you ask the knockout punch question, what does it mean for me? And you say, oh, I should be praying for President Obama. I should be praying for who's ever in office. I should be praying that God would be guiding them, that as Romans 13 says, because you read other portions of Scripture too, that he might use them as instruments of his righteousness. And I need to be praying for my government leaders that God's will, that his purposes in and through my country would come to being. And during this next election, I better pray that same thing, that God's will be done. And I can even pray directly if I believe that a certain candidate should get in, that God would have his blessing upon him or her. You pray. The Bible tells us to pray for our political leaders. And you know, when I said in the first service, because a little bit more conservative than you guys, you know that we should pray for Obama, get a little bit of a gasp. And I sit there and go, you know what? It's so funny. In the first century, when this was written, you know who the prevailing rulers were? Pontius Pilate, Herod, Nero. I mean, guys that make, you know, anybody in office today look like Mother Teresa. I mean, I'm telling you that the people back then, first century Christians, when they heard this, they go, you got to be kidding me. I got to pray for Herod? I got to pray for Pontius Pilate? I got to pray for Nero? Yes! And all of a sudden, your life is revolutionized. You're now praying, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, even for your enemies, you're doing good to them, you're loving, and there's going to come a blessing to your soul. All of that, out of reading just two verses in Scripture, that you can easily understand. Don't tell me you can't understand the Bible. Don't even tell me that you can't understand it when you ask these three questions here. Of course you can, which is why our statement of faith starts with this right understanding of Scripture and saying that it's our starting point, that it's our starting point of how to know God and how to follow Him in this world. One last closing illustration, then Troy's going to come up and uh, lead us in a closing song through our Elder Fund offering. When I was pastoring in Detroit about 20 years ago, it was a smaller church. It was an inner city church, and there was a guy in my church that had lead, led a 
very, very difficult life. At that time, he was about my age, 30 years old. He died at the age of 45 just a couple of years ago. He was a real big, robust guy. He died of a heart attack. And his name was Doug. And Doug had had a very, very difficult life. Doug had been beaten as a child mercilessly by his father. He had struggled with manic depression much of his life, had struggled with an obsessive-compulsive disorder. I mean, just kind of the guy in which the cards dealt to him had not been good, and he had really struggled. But at an early age, somebody had taken Doug to church, and he had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so Doug was also a Christian. Doug decided to go to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he was there back in the 1970s at Liberty. And when he was at Liberty, he devoured the Word of God. He had five Bibles, and this is one of them that I have here before me. I don't know if you can see it, but in this Bible, you can tell he was definitely manic depressive. Uh, you can see, get a close-up on here, that every page, and this is one of the Old Testament pages, was just marked up like I've never seen in my life. I, I mean, it's almost like that movie, A Beautiful Mind. I mean, it's just like things going everywhere. And it was markings and notes and all of this. And, and, and I remember when I first saw this, I thought, well, you might have gotten excited about a particular book. But as I went through his entire Bible, I mean, every page was like this. And I remember asking Doug, like, how many of these do you have? He said, I got, I got at least five Bibles that are, are like this that the binding is completely ripped up on it. I mean, it's just falling apart. As you can see, stuff's falling out of it. The pages are. He had five Bibles like this. And as I watched Doug for nine years as a pastor in Detroit, I saw him battle a lot of his demons, his depression, his anxiety, uh, go in and out of jobs. He, he never got married. And, and yet every time he battled one of his demons, he'd bounce back. Every time he seemed to get knocked down, Kind of like those rock'em, sock'em robots. His head would go back down and he'd start punching again. And every time he would do so, he'd quote a passage out of this book. Every time something would happen to him, he'd go to Hosea or he'd go to Matthew or he'd go to Luke or he'd go to Acts or he'd go to Romans or Thessalonians. And he'd quote the Bible to me left and right. And I finally understood after about five years of friendship with Doug that this book was a lifeline to him. Somebody once said that Bibles that are falling apart usually belong to people who aren't. I'm not sure that's completely true because you would have met Doug and you would have said at times he was falling apart. But I would also submit to you that Doug was dealt a deck of cards that most you and I weren't. We weren't born in Detroit, but we weren't born with uh, a father who abused us. We weren't born uh, with some mental struggles and emotional struggles that we have to contend with as adults. Maybe some of you were. But Doug taught me the power of this book. And so one day as I was getting ready to leave Detroit, I said to him, do you mind if I have one of your Bibles? You'd think I asked him for his firstborn son. <laughs> and he said no. And about a year later, this showed up on my desk. And he said, I want you to have one. And I said, I'll forever treasure it. Every time I see it, I will remind me the power of this book in the life of an individual. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word. I thank you that your word has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and in the written word, the Bible. And God, I pray that these dear people would get very excited, very passionate, very convicted about picking up this book and reading it on a regular basis, whether it's in a quiet time or a Bible study or through uh, church and listening to sermons, whatever it might be, Father. May we never, ever tire of learning 
the truths of your scripture. And God, as a result of that, may you illumine our minds that we might know you and follow you and be found faithful. God, I want to sing a closing song to you of worship. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your goodness to us. We rally around that today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.